tithing and giving offerings since I was 14 years of age. That's uh, 40... Two years ago. 42 years, is it that long? No, two years. Only two years ago. I was being Oh, she was being nice. Oh no, I love that. That's wonderful, Ainsley. That's um, that's going out on our iTunes. Yeah, yeah. That the whole world can hear that. That's wonderful. That was an absolute. What do you call that? A um, a compliment, because I only looked sixteen. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't smart enough to understand that subtle comment. There you go. So um, what's sixty two minus fourteen? Is that thirty eight or forty eight? It's forty eight, isn't it? Damien, can you do it? It's a long time anyway. A long, long time. And uh, I'm probably, like, I am going to teach some things today that I hesitate a little bit and I want to put it out to you to consider. Because what I'm saying about tithing and offering is a little bit different to what many, many evangelical and Pentecostal preachers actually preach. Um, if you've been around Pentecostal circles for a few years, as some of us have, uh, you'll know that uh, many pastors love Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, and that tends to be quoted nearly every Sunday, and it was one of the verses that was featured in the video there, and um, we're often exhorted, test God, by tithing and see what he'll do by way of multiplying the blessing back to you. I'm actually going to spend next Sunday and possibly the Sunday after going through all of the law associated with tithing. So I want to come back to this important topic then. However, right now I'd just like to continue with what we were talking about last week where I began to explain why it is that we don't send a bag or a plate around Sunday to Sunday. We have a box labelled tithes and offerings that we keep up the back. It's on that table out there near the, the sliding doors. And we do it primarily because, as I mentioned last week, when we were talking about planting a church, we put a lot of thought into things like format and the underlying doctrines by which we would build the church. And we don't know whether there's enough people on the planet who agree with us to build a large church. We don't know. <coughs> but we do feel very comfortable with the approach that we're taking. We believe that because we are made in the image of God and because God is a generous God. Remember last week? John 3.16 indicates that God is so generous that he gave his only son that we might not perish but have everlasting life. Now, there are lots and lots of attributes uh, to God and there, there are many ways in which our imageness in God is manifest. But one of them is generosity. And that's why we say in the, the little values statement that we have on our website, we say generosity is as natural as breathing uh, to the Christian. And I believe that if ever you want to be what I call fully fulfilled as a Christian, you need to actually express 
your imageness in God. So one of the things you need to do is to cultivate habitual generosity. And it actually starts with your thinking. It starts by thinking generously. And that can be as simple as thinking well of the people around you. So when you think about other people, when you think about your workplace, when you think about situations, be generous in the way you think. Think of something nice to say, even if you don't say it. So our, our thinking is intended to be generous, you see, because God's thoughts towards us are always generous thoughts. The words that come out of our lips should be generous as well. So everything we speak should be aimed at building people up, encouraging people, challenging people even, but in a positive way. And then our thought and our word is matched by our action. It's quite hard to force yourself to do generous deeds if you don't think and speak generously as well. Because that's the only way generosity will become as natural as breathing to you. It has to become something which is part of your very being, your thought processes, the words that you speak, and also your actions. Last week we focused on 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and it was fortuitous there that we were talking about the uh, special offering for the floods in North, in North Queensland because I mentioned there that I felt that although this chapter is also often used by preachers as a basis for giving in the church context, I think when you look at that chapter as a whole, it's actually talking about being generous towards others who are in need. And we had a need. We had a need up in North Queensland. ACC Queensland and Northern Territory said, can the churches take up an offering? I don't know how much the offering was in total. I'm sure we will find out in due course. But when these things happen, perhaps when there's a, a very poor element in the church somewhere, then we take up an offering and we do that generously. I pointed out, and I do want to refresh your memories on this, that my, my own desire is that when we give, it will be a spiritual decision. Because twice in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about generosity of the heart. When we refer to the heart in the Bible, that's spirit. So, your spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, makes a spiritual decision based on what God is calling you to do in terms of giving. And I mentioned last week that I could probably learn how to wind you up emotionally, that is on a soul level, to get you to give. And I might even get you to give more than you do already. I don't know, but I might. But my issue with that is that if you're giving because I've somehow made you feel guilty or I've raised the level of your emotions 
then I don't actually believe it is giving in a biblical way. Because it's not a decision of the heart, if you understand what I'm saying. I think it's very, very interesting. I, I don't think there's any particular spiritual significance to it, but I find it very interesting that the basis for giving in church, I believe, is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So we talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 9 last week in the context of giving the special needs. I believe that giving in the context of the local church is addressed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now I want to read quite a few verses from this chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through to 15. And I am using the Passion uh, translation of the Bible. So bear with me. It's um, a fairly lengthy reading. Uh, if, you've got a, if you've got the Bible Gateway app on your phone, you can get the Passion translation uh, through that. Um, so here's Paul. He's writing to the Corinthians. A little bit of background. Uh, Corinth was a very ungodly place. Obviously, it was a, a place where there were lots of Gentiles. It was a Greek city. And uh, in, in Corinth, people were what we call hedonistic. They were very strongly focused on their own pleasure, satisfying their own felt needs. And that general way of living had also infiltrated the church given that the church in Corinth was made up primarily of, of Gentiles, they had brought with them some of that Greek thinking about pleasure. And so Paul is trying to uh, correct the church in Corinth of some wrong thinking. And he uses quite strong language. I find the passion translation of the Bible very instructive here because the language used is language that we can understand fairly clearly. So here we go, beginning at verse 1 through to verse 15. This is Paul writing. Am I not completely free and unrestrained? Absolutely. Am I not an apostle? Of course. Haven't I had a personal encounter with our Jesus face to face? And continue to see him. Emphatically, yes. Aren't you all the proof of my ministry in the Lord? Certainly. If others do not recognize me as their apostle, at least you are bound to do so, for now your lives are joined to the Lord. <clears throat> you are the living proof, the certificate of my apostleship. So to those who want to continually criticise my apostolic ministry, here's my statement of defence. Don't we apostles have the right to be supported financially? Don't we have the right to travel accompanied by our believing wives and be supported as a couple, as do the other apostles, such as Peter the Rock and the Lord's brothers? Of course we do. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to stop working for a living? Who serves the military at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not enjoy the grapes for himself? 
Who would nurture and shepherd a flock and never get to drink its fresh milk? Am I merely giving you my own opinions? Or does the Torah teach the same things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you should never put a muzzle over the mouth of an ox while he is treading out the grain. Tell me, is God only talking about oxen here? Doesn't he also give us this principle so that we won't withhold support from his workers? It was written so that we would understand that the one spiritually ploughing and spiritually treading out the grain also labours with the expectation of enjoying the harvest. So if we sowed many spiritual gifts among you, is it too much to expect to reap material gifts from you? And if you have supported others, don't we rightly deserve this privilege even more? But as you know, we haven't used that right. Instead, we have continued to support ourselves so that we would never be a hindrance to the spread of the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that the priests employed in sacred duty in the temple are provided for by temple resources? And the priests who serve at the altar receive a portion of the offerings. In the same way, the Lord has directed those who proclaim the gospel to receive their living by the gospel. As for me, I preferred never to use any of these rights for myself. And keep in mind that I'm not writing all this because I'm hinting that you should support me. The church in Corinth, in fact, refused to support uh, Paul. And uh, they actually didn't like him a lot and they didn't agree with much of what he preached. Now I should say that in referring to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm not saying that I should be paid. We live in a different age to that of the, the early church. In the very early days of the church, and we're talking here in the first few decades of the life of Christ on earth. In the early church, there weren't lots and lots of congregations in cities, but there was generally one church in the city, and in each of these churches there were elders, sometimes bishops, who were drawn from those who had an encounter with God, they showed leadership capacity. And then overall, there were apostles like Peter, like Paul, like the brothers of Jesus, and they had a leadership role over the whole church as it existed at that time. So Paul was giving theological reasons as to why the churches should be supporting him. And a little, uh, in a little while we'll look at a passage that relates to elders or, or bishops. And he was saying, don't we have a right? In fact, the, the Greek word used there actually means authority. He's saying we have the authority, us and our wives, read households, to be supported by the, the church, the congregation. If you fast forward to the 21st century, the structure of church is different. The structure of church is not as it was in those very early days. We have actually thousands of denominations and different denominations have slightly different ways of approaching, say, their service of worship to the Lord. They have different ways of approaching 
the time of teaching and, and so on. And within different congregation, uh, different uh, denominations, there are also many different congregations, and often different congregations will have a slightly different culture. So within ACC, within Australian Christian churches, there are lots and lots, if you like, of, of, of subgroups. And uh, there are lots and lots of churches. There are large churches. There are small churches. There are churches of a size somewhere in between. And they're not all identical. I, I believe that the arguments that Paul puts forth here, given the 21st century context of the church, are arguments for supporting the local church. Now, I'm not here trying to, you know, to raise the level of emotion and to um, shame anybody into giving more or anything like that. That's not my purpose. What I want to do is provide you with a theological foundation for giving, which is different to, if you like, a 10% tithe. I want to go well beyond that because, as we shall see next week and the week after, and, and I... I I don't want to be disrespectful or um, critical of, of, of other pastors, but I would have to say that I have come to the conclusion after more than 40 years of studying off and on that <coughs> tithing as law is not for Christians and it is not for the church today. Generosity is. Jesus was quoted in the book of Acts is saying simply it is more blessed to give than to receive. So it's more blessed to give in times of need. It is more blessed to give regularly to the local church than it is to receive. And that's such a different way of thinking to the way in which the world thinks. So there are, I think, four principles that we can take from 1 Corinthians 9. So just understand, I'm not trying to get you to give more. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. It has to be a spiritual transaction, a decision that comes from your spirit, which is then enacted through writing out a check or making a transfer or putting cash in the box at the back. It has to be a spiritual transaction. You don't answer to me. You answer to God in the matter of support for the local church. But the principles that we find in 1 Corinthians 9, pastors and their households have authority or a right to eat and drink. Pastors sow, they should reap. That's very interesting there because we tend to think of sowing and reaping in terms of the individual. I sow, I reap. I sow, I reap. But here what Paul is saying is if I am sowing into you as the church, then I have a right to reap. He refers to Old Testament law in terms of muzzling the ox. So one of the, the, the laws or one of the rules that applied to, to Israel was that when, the, when oxen were, were, were tramping uh, the wheat, they used to have them they used, to, they used to have them tied to a stone and they would actually walk around in a circle hour upon hour and they were told, don't muzzle the ox. Let, let the ox actually eat some of the grain. 
And Paul uses this as an analogy. And he asks the question, did God make this law just for the oxen? And he says, no. He made it for the pastors as well, or the apostles is the word that he uses in most translations. So he's saying, don't muzzle the ox. Don't, don't expect the church, I'm talking here about the institutional church, the local church, don't expect the local church to be sowing into your life and not having a right to, to reap. And then in uh, verse 14, we actually see the statement that the Lord has commanded. The Lord has commanded. In the same way the Lord has directed or commanded those who proclaim the gospel to receive their living by the gospel. As I said, this is not an appeal for you guys to start putting money in my pocket. I'm a little bit like Paul in the sense that I work full-time and I believe that that's what God wants me to do, at least for the time being. I do believe there will come a time when I do work full-time as a pastor for Nightlight Church. I will receive a salary from the church, but the time is not now. We've still got to do a lot of building. We've still got um, lots of establishment to do because we're a very young church. And by the way, some of you might not know that Ainsley is now paid one day a week to work as church administrator. It's a role she's undertaken since we began, actually. And uh, I felt earlier in the year challenged to honour her by actually uh, employing her. So she's actually employed by Nightlight Church Incorporated, which is, as you know, based in, in Victoria. And uh, she's paid to work one day a week. She actually works a lot more than that as a volunteer. But um, she's looking after our administration. Uh, let me just move on to one other, uh, one other scripture. And this is from 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 18. And it's interesting here because uh, Paul uses that quote from Deuteronomy about muzzling the ox again. The pastors who lead the church well should be paid well. They should receive double honour for faithfully preaching and teaching the revelation of the Word of God. For the Scriptures have taught us, do not muzzle the ox or forbid it to eat while it grinds the grain. And also the one who labours deserves his wages. And that's also from Old Testament law. Uh, you'll find those references in uh, Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 25, verse 4, and Leviticus 19, 13. Um, there's an interesting principle here, and um, I, I know when I first came across it, I was a little bit sceptical about it. This is the idea of double honour. And uh, a natural reading... Oh, my goodness, time's gone on. I need to finish it pretty quickly. Um, a natural reading of that would, would tend to, to lead us to believe that that's something about honouring a person, say, in our speech or, or in our thinking... You know, not talking behind their back, not gossiping and so on. But uh, I've looked at about seven or eight different commentators going through a period of four or five hundred years of what double honour means. And it actually means double pay. Uh, the, the Greek meaning behind <coughs> that word honour has to do with what someone is actually paid. And what Paul is instructing Timothy here is that 
the, the pastor, who does a decent job, right, so there's a bit of a cave in there, should actually be paid double. Double what? Probably double some community standard. I'm not sure that it's double the CEO of a large corporation who's earning 10 or $15 million a year. I'm sure God doesn't mean that. But there's no doubt that he means you should not expect your pastor to be a pauper, all right? That they should be remunerated so that they live well. Again, this is not about me uh, personally because I'm not asking Ignite Life Church to pay my salary. But there's a principle here about honouring the local church. I do believe that in contrast to the very early uh, Christian church where there were the apostles and there were the elders and so on, in the 21st century, our model is based on the local church and, and our desire, of course, is that people would be sown into and engaged in a local church. I'll tell you one day about a wonderful vision I had, which is about building up the, the local the local church, being engaged with the local church. So this is just something for you to think about. As I said, not many, I think, would actually agree with me. Uh, many, many pastors would use uh, 2 Corinthians 9 as the theological basis for giving in the church. I think it has a more specific application than that. I think when you allow for the contextual difference between the 21st century church and the first century church, 1 Corinthians 9 is the appropriate theological basis, backed up by 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Now, you are all very quiet, aren't you? You might be thinking, hey, it's going to pass around a bag now. <laughs> I promise you I'm not. I promise you I'm not. And I, I, that's not part of, of who we are. Um, I thought I might share with you this little joke, though. I'm afraid no one will ever find us. Here we are, we're marooned on an island somewhere in the middle of the ocean. Don't worry, I'll give $100,000 a year to my church. My pastor will find us. <laughs> I think that's a good one. Well, anyway, there's some food for thought. Go away, read 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18 in a few different translations of the Bible. Get hold of a study Bible if you can and see what the footnotes actually say. Uh, next week, I hope you'll be interested to hear what I've learned about the law of tithing over the years. And I do want to go through that. It'll be a bit theological. I apologise for that in advance, but I think it's worth putting down a really firm foundation for the whole area of giving into the local church. So let's go and have some community time, eh? Um, I, I did get up early this morning and bake a cake, but I didn't test it, so I've got no idea how good it is, but I did bake a cake for you, all right? Thank you. God bless you so much. Thank you for being here.